Welcome, everybody, to the Seattle Sports Union Podcast. My name is Abraham Deweese, back once again with Brian the Soul Man, Solak, and we have a very special guest, incredible guest, a legendary guest, in one former Seattle Supersonics play-by-play announcer, Kevin Calabro. How's it going? Good, Abraham. Great to join you and Brian on the show. Appreciate it. Beautiful sunny day here in Seattle. Awesome. Soaking up the rays. And uh, before the show, we heard that you you split your time. You're in Seattle and Portland. Uh, why why would you give Why would you give that down south city the the, the unspeakable, uh, horrible, <laughs> mean, evil people down there in Oregon? Why Why would you give them any of your time? Well, uh, you know, I've always enjoyed uh, Oregon. To be honest with you, we it goes back a long way when uh, our kids were small. When the Sonic season was over, uh, which typically was uh, after a first-round flameout. Uh, now, there were obviously exceptions in the mid-'90s. We had a lot of fun. There were some first-round flameouts, even when we had uh, things rolling, as you might remember when we lost to Denver and Los Angeles in back-to-back first-round series. But when we would have those flameouts, you know, we were left with uh, a whole lot of time off in the summer. And that's one of the great benefits of doing this job is that you know, the uh, the organizations I work for, Seattle and Portland, uh, didn't force me onto a desk, uh, didn't chain me into an office uh, when the season was over. I was able to go and enjoy my family that, uh, frankly, had, had put up and made a lot of sacrifices with dad being away for seven months out of the year during the season. So that's how I get to this point about the Oregon story. We would, seeking sunshine, warmth, and a great outdoor experience, we landed on the idea that we were going to drive to Bend, Oregon. And this goes back, you know, before Bend was really trendy like it is now. I mean, it's a, an absolute boom town. But we would go down to the high desert of Oregon and we'd just have a great time. We'd go down and spend a couple of weeks. Uh, my kids, when they were tiny, loved to play golf, loved to canoe, loved to get outdoors and, and hike. And it was just a perfect combination down there in Bend. So we'd head down there and... Uh, just enjoy ourselves along the river and in the high desert of Oregon. And uh, we, you know, we quickly realized though, that was such a long trip down there from Seattle. <clears throat> that was, you know, roughly the seven, eight hour trip when you've got small kids that we, uh, we landed on another idea and we began to go to Yakima, Washington, where it was always sunny and a little bit warmer in the spring. And then later Chelan, Washington, where we uh, bought a home in 06 and really enjoy uh, our time spent in Chelan. So my, my association with Oregon and with um, the folks of Oregon goes goes way, way back. And then, of course, you know, the Sonics and the Blazers always had great matchups, uh, really compelling games, terrific, larger-than-life characters playing for those teams and coaches coaching those teams. And that goes back, of course, with me starting with the Sonics in 1987, which was, you know, kind of the beginning of the heyday of the Blazers at that time when they had uh, two final appearances in three years, and in that middle year may have had their best team, but lost in the conference finals. And, of course, they were coached by Rick Adelman and so forth. And uh, the Sonics were in 87. were just getting off the mat with Bernie Bickerstaff and the great trio of scorers and Xavier McDaniel and Tom Chambers um, and Dale Ellis. Um, You know, that was just a remarkable team that I started with in in 87. And so that that I really got uh, immersed in the rivalry between the two teams and the two cities. 
Uh, you know, I'm from Indianapolis, Indiana. I'm not a native Northwesterner. Didn't grow up in Seattle. Didn't grow up in Portland, Portland, Oregon. So I, you know, I didn't really appreciate the sometimes the animosity, the animus that can be, you know, built up <laughs> between the two states, between the two cities, and so forth. Um, but I was reindoctrinated when I got to Portland and quickly reminded uh, by a number of fans <laughs> in Portland that uh, they, they perceived me as a Seattle guy and as a Sonic guy, even though, you know, I hadn't done a Sonic broadcast in eight years. and They had left in 2008. And I see myself more as a Northwest guy, you know, somebody that's elected to stay here in the great Northwest just because, uh, you know, we enjoy all the, our relationships and all of our experiences and so forth here in the, in the great Northwest. So, uh, you know, Portland's been very good to me on balance, and I've been there now since uh, the 2016 season. And, uh, you know, really looking forward after last year's experience, um, the Blazers lost 21 of their last 23 ball games. <laughs> they, had, they have more 30-plus point losses than any other team, I think maybe in the history of the league, and 15 of those. Of course, you know, there was a number of changes that were made during the season last year in the front office and so forth. New coach and Chauncey Billups, uh, the injury to Damian Lillard, of course, uh, early in the season, uh, an injury that had been lingering with him for the last three or four years, and it finally had built to a point where he just he just couldn't go anymore, and they had to shut him down eventually in in late November. Um, you know, all that compounded to to uh, bring out a, just a, a a real tough year for the Blazers, but I think on balance, you know, a pretty good experience for everybody. Uh, one that you know we don't want to ever be a part of again. Yeah. Uh, but but moving forward, I think we'll make uh, the Blazers a better organization. Outstanding. Uh, you mentioned Indianapolis, which leads to this. I got a shout out from an old friend of yours that remembers a very little Kevin Calabro knocking on the Breezeway door on Walton Street in Indianapolis, asking to play with his little brother Larry. Do you know who I'm talking about? Yeah, Larry Williams. Um, uh, and that may be Alan Williams. Um, right. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Larry's an old friend of mine. Uh, one of the, one of the great friends that I have, uh, from back in the day. Yeah. I, I mean, we go back to first grade together. So, uh, and Larry now is, uh, doing quite well in, in academics. He and his wife, uh, at Texas tech in, in Lubbock, Texas. And, He's just always been a great fan of the game of basketball and played at a very high level in high school. And his brothers played at a very high level in high school and later in college as well. And, um, and their dad coached for a number of years and has a great background in basketball in the state of Indiana. Yeah. When you're, when you're from Indiana, you, you know, you have a, obviously a great passion for the game of basketball. And that's kind of a shared passion that we all have uh, in Indiana and, and, and elsewhere. Let, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the passion because everybody's seen the movie Hoosiers. Um, that sounds like it's really a thing. It sounds like that passion really does mean something. Uh, how is it different in Indiana versus other places you've been? Well, I think, you know, it's a, it's a Midwest thing too. I mean, you talk about to folks from Illinois, from Ohio, Michigan, I think they all have that kind of that shared bond in, in the game of basketball. It's just that the winters are so brutal there. And, you know, growing up in my era, I was born in 56. So, you know, it's before multiple channels, before electronic games, before uh, the indoor, the great lavish indoor facilities that, that, you know, that we have now, the sports facilities and so forth. You were just trying to get into a gym during a, 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 a brutal winter day to get out from the cold and go indoors and, and play some basketball. You know, do something, be active, uh, be social, get together. And, you know, and, and 
in those smaller towns, and I grew up on the west side of Indianapolis, frankly, we didn't have the multiplex uh, theaters and the malls and stuff like that hadn't been, you know, really conceptualized or built then. There were no gathering places other than the Friday or Saturday night basketball games. Mm. You go to the high school gym on a Friday or Saturday night, you'd see everybody there. You'd see the old folks, the young folks, underclassmen, high school uh, classmates and so forth. And, you know, for three, four hours, you just have a great time. You know, you go beforehand and do cheers and hang out and see the junior varsity play. And then the varsity would come on and play. And, and then afterwards kind of hang out a little bit at the gym or you'd have a, and I, th- now this, this really dates me. You'd have what they used to call the sock hop. Or <laughs> you'd, you'd take your shoes off. You come out on the floor, you know, and they'd play, they'd play music and everybody would dance and have a great time. And, you know, so that was, that was, to me, it was, uh, everything, the social, uh, that social idea in the community always, uh, revolved around basketball and around the high school gym. Um, and it was a pretty healthy way, I think, to to get through the the, uh, the bleak winters there in the Midwest. <laughs> right on. Uh, when you're growing up, or maybe even today, who's been a major influence to you in broadcasting? Well, you know, I think the local broadcasters are always the guys that, you know, you listen, or gals that you listen to, um, and, and sort of pattern your, the, the, the beginning, the, the nexus of your, your broadcasting, uh, technique around. And for me, it was a guy by the name of Jerry Baker, who was the original voice of the Indiana Pacers. When the Pacers, uh, joined the ABA back in 1967, you know, I'd been 10, 11 year old kid and Jerry was on the number one radio station there in town for years as a disc jockey. And then they hired him on as a play-by-play guy, which, to me, it was a brilliant decision because he was a well-known voice in town, uh, known as a you know just a, a fun, bubbly, big personality, great voice, and an amazingly beautiful voice. And they hired him to do the basketball. And Jerry was from Terre Haute, Indiana, and 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 knew basketball extremely well, having grown up in the great state of Indiana as well, and gone to Indiana State, which was a a fair basketball uh, school, as as Larry Bird would attest, and. Jerry was able to communicate in a really uh, unique way his passion and love for the game of basketball and and was able to really paint a great picture, word picture, of what was going on on the floor and to describe all the characters that were on those old ABA teams because there were some great teams with larger-than-life characters uh, that were playing for the Pacers and for all those teams in, in the old American Basketball Association. So... Jerry Baker would be the guy that I, I listened a lot to. And then Joe McConnell came along and followed him. And anybody that's been in the radio business knows Joe McConnell, just a, a terrific voice, a machine gun like staccato delivery, uh, just a, 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 a micro description of what was going on on the floor. Uh, Joe was Joe, Joe was extremely good and worked for a number of professional teams in uh, pro basketball in baseball, college basketball, college football, and professional football as well, did a lot of NFL stuff. Um, so those were the guys, you know, growing up in junior high, high school, and later in college that I I used to listen to a, a, a great deal. You know, again, local guys that maybe have not heard in the markets in New York, mm-hmm. Chicago, or Los Angeles, but if you really plugged into the business, you knew about these voices. Very nice. And Terre Haute, of course, being the home of uh, Columbia, the 10 CDs for a penny, 
uh, scam that we all got suckered into. Um, <laughs> I, didn't, I wasn't aware of that. I'll, I'll <laughs> yes. be more alert next time. <laughs> <laughs> I kept getting collection bills from them. I kept, and I didn't pay them. So um, <laughs> we'll see who the real sucker was there. But um, <laughs> when uh, uh, switching gears, when the Sonics uh, were sold by Howard Lincoln, I had this sinking feeling. A lot of my friends had this sinking feeling uh, when that happened. Did you, did you have optimism or any pessimism? Uh, conversely, any pessimism uh, when that sale went down with the Oklahoma group? Now, you, of course, you're talking about Howard Schultz, Howard Lincoln being the CEO. I'm of, sorry. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry yeah. Exactly. yeah. <laughs> just, just, just to clarify for, for folks. Uh, yeah. So when, when Howard sold uh, to anybody other than Steve Ballmer and Microsoft, uh, it was, I think, a surprise to a lot of us because the speculation was uh, for at least as far as I can remember the two years previous to that, that Howard would be, if Howard was going to sell, it was going to be to Microsoft. And we were all uh, hoping that it would be to Microsoft uh, and, and, and to Steve Ballmer uh, because those folks had been great fans of, of the NBA and, and of the Sonics uh, when they sold to Oklahoma city and Clay Bennett, uh, it immediately, uh, obviously put, put everybody on notice that this team may be, may be moving because anybody that was listening or paying attention could have told you that Clay Bennett was publicly stating that he was after an NBA team, whether it be through expansion or relocation for Oklahoma city. And it's because they had demonstrated quite well that they could host NBA ball games when remember after Katrina, New Orleans had to relocate and Oklahoma city was put on the map and designated as that team. And part of the reason that they were designated as that team is because Clay Bennett, who was an Oklahoma city guy felt like NBA basketball could regenerate downtown, could, could produce uh, the kind of um, image that they wanted to produce there in Oklahoma City, give them some type of image in Oklahoma City. Um, and and uh, he, he was a, a great proponent of, of his hometown. And they made that known to, to uh, David Stern, created a personal relationship with David Stern. So all this was, all this was already set in motion uh, for not necessarily the Sonics, but a team that was looking to relocate or an expansion. And so, uh, you know, the Sonics had gone to Oklahoma City, remember, for a couple of years uh, and went into that building. And remember, that's where Chris Paul began, CP3 began his career oh, yeah. was in Oklahoma City. So they, they had some extraordinary players there. It was a great environment. Uh, they had a building in which they could play, you know, free of cost. Uh, the city was willing to do anything necessary to lure an NBA team there, anything necessary, pick up any cost in order to make that building amenable to, to the NBA. So uh, when, when that uh, deal was consummated, the sale uh, from Howard to, uh, to Clay Bennett, uh, it, it uh, obviously put everybody on notice. Now, what we all miscalculated, myself included, was uh, that the league would move from a city that had 41 years of history a championship, any number of Hall of Famers, 
uh, a great legacy, a tremendous market, a jumping off point to China, which is a huge NBA uh, market, um, that they would that, that they would move from a, a city like that, top 15 television market, to a city like Oklahoma City, where there had been no history really of NBA involvement at all, other than hosting Katrina, the, the you know, the uh, uh, New Orleans because of Katrina. Uh, and, you know, from a population standpoint, not near what Seattle was, granted a lot of money because of the oil business and so forth. Um, it just it just didn't it didn't add up. Uh, I, I think also I think also, at least for myself, I didn't realize the city and state government in Washington were going to be so hostile towards the whole thing. Correct. Correct. Well, I, you know, I think at that point and, and Bennett pointed it out um, and, and look, Clay Bennett read the atmosphere and the temperature here in Seattle and in city government expertly. I mean, he really had instincts. Uh, he, he knew he knew that there was a real disconnect, I think, between Olympia and between the city of Seattle, uh, the, the mayor, the, the council and so forth between them and the current ownership of, of the Sonics who had been exploring, trying to improve key arena in a public private partnership, which, you know, just didn't seem to get off the ground at all. Bennett knew all that. And he picked up on that and, and he realized that that was a weak point. And he also had taken a look at the lease on the, uh, on the arena. And he knew that the clock was ticking on, on the lease on the arena. And he knew that the Sonics were losing a lot of money playing in that arena uh, because of the lack of, uh, of, revenue that could be generated by the building and through the building and so you know he he he's an astute businessman he he put it all together and and you're right it was a little surprising that even at the last minute nothing could be done uh to 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 come together but but bennett coined a phrase and he said that the the region had stadium fatigue Mm. uh because the 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 region had already uh at the last minute done a, a facility for the baseball team Right. Uh, Paul Allen had to go out and actually write a check to get a referendum vote to do the new football stadium. Um, and, you know, uh, f- uh, those were big, big projects. I mean, I think Safeco Field, I think, was what a billion dollar project. Um, uh, so there, I think, was some some fatigue among the city and the state uh, uh, for doing these arenas. And I think Unfortunately, the, the, the Sonics uh, were left without a seat at the party. I, I got to go back to 1996. Why didn't the Supersonics win it all? I was so confident going in, and obviously we all know what happened, but in your opinion, why didn't we win it in 96? Well, you're playing the greatest team in the history of basketball at that point in terms of wins in 72. Uh, you're up against Michael Jordan who has a renewed fire now after sitting out the last year and a half, uh, the death of his father, um, you know, the pursuit of baseball. Um, I, I think there was some turmoil in, in Michael's life at that point, and understandably so. But when he came back, it was with just a renewed vigor. Uh, and he's playing with another top 50 player of all time, and Scottie Pippen. And they had a great support crew, and they were well-coached. Um, and, uh, I, I just think the, I think the Sonics just ran into a better team. Now you can, you can talk about injuries. You can talk about Nate wasn't fully healthy. I would agree a fully healthy Nate McMillan. Although Nate, if you go back to his rookie year, was having issues with his knees at that point. 
Uh, so I'm not sure you'd ever have a fully healthy Nate McMillan, but let's just say a, a more healthy Nate McMillan. And Gary Payton had a, uh, a calf injury that bothered him uh, that necessitated, or so George Carl thought, putting him off of Jordan, not allowing him to, to ch- check Jordan early in the series. I mean, these are kind of minute, small things that, that do add up, but many people would point to those as being factors in the outcome of, of the finals. But I just think they ran into, look, arguably the best player to ever come down uh, the pike and play NBA basketball on Michael Jordan, um, a very good support crew around him, uh, and some tough matchups. I mean, not only Pippen, but Tony Kukoc. People just forget what a, a tremendous talent Kukoc was. Um, and Rod- starter come off the bench, he was a remarkable and unique talent. Right, and Rodman was also a master at harassing people. Um, Phenomenal. Re- I mean, one of the great rebounders <laughs> of all time and a, and a guy that knew his role uh, superbly. And that was just to get the ball on both ends of the floor and play solid defense. Uh, and they were they were just so long, that team. I mean, you, you, you talk about a template for today's game. They shot the three well and defensively they would win every 50-50 battle. Uh, that was a, a, a great hustle team. And the Sonics were in the same mold. Uh, the Sonics would press up on you, force uh, turnovers, and score off of turnovers. That's the way they got it done. Of course, led by Gary Payton, who was the uh, defensive player of the year, the last guard to get that, um, uh, other than, of course, Marcus Smart, who, who got it this year. Um, and so they were, they were like-minded when it came to defense. It was, they were long. They you know, measure out at about an average of 6'7", six, 6'8", were just electric on the floor, really got after you. But, you know, having said that, they had no answer for Sean Kemp in that series uh, at all. Kemp was remarkable. Uh, I mean, he, he averaged close to 23, 24 points, just shy of 12 rebounds, block shots. Phil Jackson said that just they did not have an answer for <laughs> for, for Sean Kemp. It was just so, uh, you know, that was that uh, I, I think that was gratifying to see from that standpoint. Um, but uh just uh I, you know and the other thing too about it and george has addressed this is you're playing a team that's got a core that's already won three championships they've already been to the top of the mountain they know how the routine works when you get into that finals environment the sonics certainly did not know that because the previous two years they had had these grand flameouts to to denver and to the los angeles lakers so this was brand new territory for the Sonics. And I just anecdotally from my standpoint, just from, you know, an announcer on the sideline, not that that's, you know, any true reader with the players and the coaches or what they're thinking, but I felt relieved after that Utah series. I mean, that was a tough series. They beat a great Utah team to get into the finals. So yep. I might, you know, my feeling was, you know, at this point, it's all ice. You know, if we can just steal a couple of games. That's going to be tremendous. It's just great that we're in the finals, you know, such a relief. I felt just such a relief after what we had gone through the previous two years. We're coming up against the, uh, against clock. So I'm going to ask one more question and Brian, you can ask one more after that. Um, People ask me what's so great about Kevin Clabber. And the way I explain it is you do broadcasts like you're on radio. In other words, you, you tell a story and I feel like that's getting lost nowadays. Are uh, do you have the same opinion of that, or am I am I just marking out for for the greatest the greatest Sonics broadcaster of all time? <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that. You know, with all due respect to Bob Blackburn, the the original voice of the of the Sonics, who was 
there for 20 seasons and, and, and did a remarkable job. And of course was the voice of the, the, the championship, uh, Seattle Supersonics and, and a team that went to one other finals as well. And was the voice of so many great. Okay. Uh, you're right. Second, you're the second, great. you're the second greatest. So, <laughs> yeah. And you know, and Bob was, Bob was really terrific the way our, our careers overlap, uh, and very gracious and, and, and welcoming me to Seattle and bringing me on board and so forth and introducing me to the Seattle market. Um, I think uh, to answer your question, if you're referring to the television broadcast, we did something that was unique uh, at the time. There were only, I think, three or four other teams that were doing it. Oh, you had the simulcast, uh, right? We did the simulcast. Yeah, Chick, Chick Hearn was doing it. Uh, I think Al McCoy down in Phoenix did it. Um, Hot Rod Hunley was doing it in Utah for a period of time. There may have been a few others, uh, but those those primarily were the, the three or four teams that were doing it at the time. And they decided to do it just to cut costs, to be honest with you. And they didn't know how it would work. They did it my third year with the Sonics, and it seemed to be working out pretty well. Uh, you know, we started off with Rick Barry as the, our color analyst, and then we went through uh, a phase of three or four years there where we had uh, – uh, a variety of guys. And then we landed on Marcus Johnson in 93. I think it was and Marcus was phenomenal. He understood what the simulcast was about trying to get the play by play uh, aspects down for the radio audience, but not overdo it for the TV audience. And I think um, in general, I think we did a, we did a pretty good job of that, but moreover, it was just to have fun and bring life to the characters that were on the floor and tell the stories of the guys on the floor. Um, you know, today, uh, I think with the television broadcast, you've, as a play by play guy, less is more with the TV broadcast. I mean, you want to get in and have the big call if you can, where you can, but for the most part, you're just trying to tee up the analysts and have a discussion with the analysts about what's going on, whether it be the X's and O's or whether it be about the background of a player or the technique of a player or where you ate last night. Sometimes if you got a bad game, that kind of thing, um, (laughs) So, I mean, there are very various ways to do it. Um, and, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's kind of, it's a subjective thing, you know, people, uh, people have their own likes and dislikes and guys that you see on national television are, are guys that have been in big markets or work in big markets, um, uh, that have touchstones with, with folks in, in the network and, uh, relationships with folks in the network and so forth. And, and those folks, you know, they want to work with people they have confidence in and that they know uh, and 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 uh, have uh, past relationships with. So, uh, you know, that's kind of where the business goes. It's it's a relationship business uh, when in terms of, you know, trying to uh, work in, in various markets or work nationally or so forth. And uh, um, but I think bottom line for young announcers is to just do what you feel most comfortable doing and and work to your strengths, you know, identify your strengths and work to those and then try to strengthen uh, the weaknesses that you might have in your game. Outstanding. Um, uh, I'm trying to pick, I got so many (laughs) questions I want to ask you, but I'm going to go with this one. Will you please give us a quick 10 second patent play play by play from your Sonic days, whether it's Gary Payton leading the fast break to Sean Kemp for a dunk. I mean, I, Abraham and I and all our listeners would love to hear it. I mean, we missed your voice. <laughs> well, you know, a lot of our a lot of our offense was uh, started with a defense, so it would be, you know, Gary and 
and Hawkins double teaming Stockton and getting the ball out of his hands. Ball is deflected to the sideline. Peyton will pick it up and fire it over to Hawkins, and he'll leave it to Detlef Shrimp trailing on the play and looks inside for Perkins on the low block. He's fronted by Malone, but Kemp pops out on the baseline, and over it comes to Kemp and runs the baseline and cocks it back and jams it down. Yeah. Thank you. That's awesome. (laughs) That's awesome. I don't know know if Kemp (laughs) – I just saw I just saw Sean about a week or so ago. I was going to ask him if he could still dunk. <laughs> maybe it, maybe this he's probably in his fifties, so it's probably just donuts at this point. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, Mister Collabora, for being on our show. You are awesome. Uh, we miss yes. you. Sonics need to come back, uh, and we need to. We we might have to abduct you from the Trailblazer. We might just get in a white Chevy Astro and. Bring you back if the Sonics come back, you know. Yeah, well, well, we'll, we'll see. I kind of, I take it year to year. Like I was joking with some people last night. I said, they said, well, when do you, when do you think the Sonics will come back? And I'll say, and I said, I'll tell you what I've been telling people since '08 when they left. Sometime in the next three years. <laughs> well, hopefully this time it's true. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Well, all right. We always like to end our show on a shout out, and that's just you know a little positive vibe that we send out there to everyone in the universe um i'm gonna go ahead and get this started and i'm gonna give a shout out to daniel annenberg daniel it's your birthday happy birthday um you're a great softball player and you're an above average friend i'm just kidding you're a great friend (laughs) over to you brian Happy birthday, Daniel. Uh, my shout-outs to my lovely wife of almost 28 years, Janine. She's been battling a lot of ailments over the last few years. She's finally on the road to recovery, so I just want to say I love you, and I'm sorry that we had to go through, but I'm proud of you and looking forward to the next 28 years. Over to you, Kevin. Well, that's, that's very good, Brian. Shout-out to my wife, Sue. We've been married 40 years, effective last weekend. And she has put up with a lot of nonsense and me traveling and chasing the game of basketball over the years. So shout out to Sue. Um, We are uh, just and just one more quick plug. Sue and I are headed to the Champions of Change Gala tonight at the Fremont Studios. Uh, Doug Baldwin of the Seahawks called me months ago and said, could you be the PA announcer for a celebrity basketball game we got going on for charity? I said, sure. So that is tomorrow at Climate Pledge. Nice. At 3 o'clock, tickets still available at Climate Pledge. It's for Champions of Change, Doug Baldwin, several Cliff Averill, uh, Michael Bennett, several Seahawks, some Mariners. That's uh, right. Uh, uh, Gary Payton and Sean Kemp are going to be there as well. They're going to be uh, coaches Isaiah Thomas, uh, Jamal Crawford. It, yeah, it, it should be a pretty good time. That's tomorrow, 3 o'clock at Climate Pledge. Come on down and see us. Fantastic. And where, where can people find you? Uh, you're still doing the broadcast for the Trailblazers? I am doing the broadcast for the Trailblazers. Looking forward to next year. Excellent. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us this week on the Seattle Sports Union Podcast. Thank you to Kevin Calabro for being our awesome and fantastic guest. On behalf of Brian, the Soul Man, so like I'm Abraham Deweese, we'll see you guys next time. <laughs>